This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Talk about different and unique things here on the show, like space and science. That's all the cool stuff, right? Well, a new study published in Astrobiology yesterday caught our attention. So we're going to talk about it now. Gordon Osinski joins us, the director of Western University's Institute for Earth and Space Exploration. Gordon, thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, let's talk more about this idea that life on Earth may have come from space as in a, you know, meteorite impact here. For sure, yeah. So, um, you know, we're, we're hoping people are going to be a little bit surprised and intrigued by this. Um, you know, if you picture a big 10-kilometer chunk of rock hurtling towards Earth, probably the, the first thing you think about is not a very positive one. Um, you know, we do think the dinosaurs... And lots of other, uh, about 65% of species on Earth were actually wiped out by an asteroid impact about 65 million years ago. Um, but what we hopefully have shown in this paper is that, you know, okay, that's a, a very kind of instantaneous, uh, short-lived destructive event. Um, but after they form, um, impact craters can actually provide ideal habitats for life, which, you know, we think were important on early Earth. And this has implications, of course, in the search for life on Mars, too. So was there something that those meteorites brought other than the impact that would have helped life along? Yes, we focused on a couple of main main things. Um, so we in this paper, we didn't get into this idea of panspermia, which is, you know, actually life itself coming with the meteorites or the asteroids. So we kind of avoided that because that's, you know, still quite a contentious topic. Um, but we focused on two other areas. And one is just, you know, bringing or actually creating the building blocks for life. You know, so all life on Earth is carbon-based. And there are uh, a particular group of meteorites and then actually comets that are very rich in carbon and other um, things like even amino acids that, you know, we need to, even before we have life, to, to create, get life started. And so we know um, that those can be delivered to Earth by impacts. Um, you can actually generate things like clay minerals. Um, so a lot of people think that these particular mineral species are important, and they almost acted as templates where early life got a hold on Earth. And so that's the building blocks. Right. And then the other big thing that uh, we've been working on for a number of years and kind of summarized in this paper is creating habitats for life. You know, so that point on Earth or that environment where life could have originated. And one of the big ones is hydrothermal systems. You know, so if you've mm -hmm. taken courses or seen documentaries about, you know, where life may have originated on Earth, you may have seen pictures of Yellowstone and the hot springs or those black smokers at the bottom of the, you know, the mid-Atlantic ridge. Right. And so those are environments where water gets heated up and they're ideal environments for life. And we've shown that it can also form an impact events. Huh. So it's almost like life on Earth was headed in one direction. It was doing its thing. And then with the meteorite impact, it the planet got a do-over and headed in a different direction. <laughs> you know, it's entirely plausible. Um, the answer, is, the honest answer is that we don't know. Um, you know, one of the things we touch on briefly in the paper is that uh, most of the record of the first half a billion years of Earth's history, you know, it's a long time, is gone. Earth is a very active body, you know, because of plate tectonics and volcanism and erosion. And so, you know, I don't think we'll actually ever know exactly where and when life on Earth originated. But we, what we've tried to present in this paper is, you know, this is a pretty good environment, a good scenario. We know impacts happen um, and always will happen and, uh, you know, uh, go from there. It's amazing, though, isn't it, Gordon, that we're continuing to make these kinds of discoveries and these advances? Yeah, and I mean, it's what keeps me, you know, interested and excited about uh, doing uh, my, you know, my job as a professor and, and doing this research is because, 
yeah, there are always new advances, like you say. And, uh, you know, I'm excited about uh, the upcoming year because, uh, again, we touched on this in the paper and I mentioned at the beginning, you know, if this happened on Earth, uh, Mars is a very Earth-like planet. We know craters form. We know there's water there, which is a key ingredient for hydrothermal systems. And um, the per- NASA's Perseverance rover just happens to be going to land in a, an impact crater on Mars in uh, a few months' time, hopefully. So, you know, maybe some of the things that we proposed and found in this paper will actually be, you know, found on the surface of Mars in a few months. Well, then I guess we'll be talking to you again. Uh, Gordon, thank you so much for your time. That'd be fantastic. And uh, yeah, thanks and have a good day. You too. That's Gordon Ozinski, who's the director of Western University's Institute for Earth and Space Exploration, talking about the latest paper they published in Astrobiology, uh, talking about life on Earth and how it may have been helped along thanks to whatever was found inside the meteorites that impacted Earth. It's some fascinating stuff. This is Mornings with Simi. I don't think we've ever followed statistics as closely as we are doing right now. Any stat that's going on, whether it's house sales or jobs or economic indicators, we just follow everything so closely to see if there's any sign of an economic rebound or things recovering, any sign that we might be going back to normal. Well, tomorrow, it's another one of those milestones. We're going to be getting the results of the August labor force survey. So we'll find out how many people went back to work, how many people are still looking for work, and gives us a really good picture of kind of what's going on in the Canadian economy right now. So we thought, let's get a bit of a preview of this. What can we expect? So joining us now is Brendan Bernard, who's an economist with Indeed.ca. Brendan, thanks for being back with us. Thanks for having me. So let's get a bit of a preview here. What are you expecting to hear tomorrow? Uh, So I think that as we get further from April, the amount of juice left in the labor market from reopening of businesses that were shut down earlier is gradually fading. Uh, and, and so I think that's what we're going to see in uh, this, uh, the upcoming job numbers, where, you know, uh, still there are some pockets of the economy that hadn't quite uh, opened in certain areas of the country, um, uh, even, even in midsummer in July. Uh, and, and But, you know, things, more and more things gradually open. And so, that adds jobs, and, uh, and, and it'll be like a substantial number, but uh, probably at a slower pace than what we've seen overall in the recovery. Now, is that what you've seen with job postings? Uh, basically, yeah. So, so August actually has is, is seen a, a steady improvement in, uh, in, in job postings numbers compared to last year, but, uh, but not quite the pace uh, that, that we saw uh, in, in June and July. And, and, and I think it just makes sense, you know, um, uh, economy shut down, uh, every, everything is just on pause. Uh, and then as things are getting back to normal, uh, you, you've got a rebound. But uh, the getting back to normal can only take you so far when we've still got this pandemic cloud just hanging over our heads. And, uh, and, and that's just really showing up in the job market. Okay, so when are, are jobs being posted, like are there industries out there that are still looking to hire people? There are. Uh, so, so we have seen at least uh, a rebound, like the job numbers, an incomplete rebound in job posting. But there's some sectors of the economy that, uh, that actually are hiring or have seen uh, noticeable momentum uh, over, over the past few weeks. So construction, um, warehousing, uh, certain jobs in uh, transportation as well. Uh, they, they've seen a, a pretty nice bounce back uh, over, the, over the past few months, such that they're actually running a, uh, a hiring appetite is actually uh, – pretty close to nor- normal levels. Um, and, and these are some of the areas of the economy where uh, there, there's still a pretty substantial shortfall in jobs uh, compared to mm. where we entered the pandemic. So suggest that there are, is some potential upside potential uh, uh, for, for some of right. these sectors. So then it, can we only say it's a partial recovery? Because as you point out, I mean, we, there's a huge company that's advertising right now in our station uh, because they want people to apply for jobs. And I looked at their list and it's just like page after page after page of open jobs. And I know another company, uh, friends of mine, trying to hire personal trainers and they they can't get any people to apply. And I'm thinking, so there's people out there really who need employees and can't find them. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the labor market is just such a like massive uh, web of, you know, employers, job seekers and, and, and the economy that's kind of surrounding it. And so just 
any one time, you know, you can have uh, the overall trend, uh, you know, still a bit weaker uh, th- th- than w- what it is in normal times. And that still means tons of uh, job opportunities. It's, just, it's, it's all relative. It's all, well, okay, there, there are job, jobs open now in right. certain areas. Uh, but, you know, uh, when, when we went, entered into this crisis, we were at unemployment near multi-decade lows. And just like that environment that we sort of were getting used to uh, for a few years, 2017, 2018, 2019, like it's, it's, just, uh, it's just not the same as it was. Could it also be, Brendan, that maybe people aren't quite yet willing to let go of a job that they are hoping to go back to? Well, uh, you know, it, 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 that, that, that's possible. And, and that's one of the things that uh, CERB uh, did, uh, has, has done to, uh, to the labor market um, uh, since it was uh, introduced. Uh, you had a lot of businesses shutting down, mm-hmm. um, unable to pay, the, pay their employees, and CERB helped keep those uh, workers afloat as the business was, uh, was put on pause. And as things reopen, uh, um, uh, pe- people can go, go back to their previous employer without you know, switching jobs and creating a, a, a lot of havoc in the labor market. But, um, but at the same time, you never, you never exactly know uh, if, if the business is going to come back. Uh, you know, it is definitely... A, challenging time for a lot of small businesses, uh, especially in uh, areas of the service sector. And, uh, and, and so it can, it could actually be a bit risky to, uh, to, to uh, just wait for your previous employer to, to reopen if they're in one of those areas of the economy that uh, uh, are going to face some longer term troubles with, uh, with the pandemic. And so do you think that's one of the things that we're probably going to see shake out over the next couple of months that people are going to have to make a decision? Am I going back to this job or am I going to have to switch careers or find something else? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that that's going to be, uh, you know, a- a- as we get further and further from the initial shutdown uh, world, the, the number of people who are temporarily laid off, uh, but expecting to come back is going to fade. And, and really, the, the longer-term damage that we're worried about is among people who are permanently laid off. One area of the economy I'm, I'm sort of uh, uh, going to sh- shift my attention to a little bit, and, and I notice it's one of the weaker sectors in BC right now, is uh, building and business services. So that's, um, uh, that includes like uh, janitorial services, um, uh, certain like wa- uh, wa- waste management, just services for offices. Uh, office administration. Um, uh, th- these are some areas of the economy where, you know, with this shift to remote work, um, I-, I don't see them bouncing back uh, uh, to-, to-, to the degree uh, that um, was prevailing uh, before the crisis. And so, you know, what happens here and where do th- these workers potentially transition to um, is-, is a real uh, question for the labor market. So we we haven't fully adapted yet to the way, we don't know yet how things are shaking out in terms of what anything's going to look like. So I feel like the next couple months are going to be very critical. Brendan, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. It's Brendan Bernard, an economist with Indeed.ca, kind of previewing the August labor force survey that comes out tomorrow. And he said, even though they're, they're seeing some more job postings there, but there is still the gap between these industries that are definitely hiring, really looking for people and having trouble getting employees versus the unemployment numbers. And I think it is a lot of people hoping to go back to their jobs, hoping things will recover enough that they can go back to a job that they liked or loved or were comfortable with. And that still hasn't happened. If you want to tell me what's going on with you and your job, absolutely. Email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, great song. That gets you up and going on this Thursday morning, doesn't it? Let's check in and say good morning to Nikki Reitmeyer. Hi, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. I was thinking just the same thing. Jeez, I love this song. Me too. It makes you want to get up and start moving. Yeah, it makes you want to get up, start moving. I don't know, start making another cup of coffee. 40,000 feet above the earth. No. Uh, yeah, maybe if I have another coffee, I'll be the same as David <laughs> Blaine, floating high off the ground. How does he Did come up? Yeah. How does he come up with this stuff? I have no idea. I mean, I guess so much of what magicians or illusionists do these days is to produce, you know, really great, incredible videos that people are going to watch online, the kind of stuff that's going to go viral, right? So they need to continue to get more creative. And this latest trick that he 
pulled off yesterday where he floated, floated uh, 24,000 feet into the air while holding onto a, a bundle of balloons. This is something that was seemingly inspired by like a kid's movie, like Up or something like that. I mean, right? you know, you know, when you were a kid and you'd have a fistful of helium balloons, all kids think to themselves, I wonder how many more balloons I'd need to hold before I I'd yes. start to float, right? <laughs> yes. So David Blaine thought that he would do that trick and actually float above the ground holding enough helium balloons. So they tied a whole bunch of big helium balloons to him. I mean, these are jumbo-sized helium balloons. And holding 52 of them, he began to float up into the air. And this wasn't just an illusion or, or a magic trick. It seems as though he actually did this. And it was quite... Uh, quite, you know, well documented. There was a whole crew. I mean, I got a clip here from part of the three hour video. Listen to this. How's the temperature? You know, you're, about you're saying this ascent rate is good, Don and Bert. We're good with this. Affirmative. Bert sitting next to me. He said yes. Okay. I don't know. That seems crazy to me. Like, I, Back during the early part of the pandemic, back in April, Nikki, there was a David Blaine network special. Did you watch this by any chance? It was called The Magic no. Way. No, I didn't. Was it good? Oh, not only did I watch it, I recorded it, and then I made everybody in my family watch it because my really? mind was blown. And it was him visiting celebrities like um, Emily Blunt and her husband, John Krasinski, Tom Brady, Dave Chappelle, and doing these magic, and Michael Jordan. And so they were, their minds were blown. My mind was blown watching it. I could not believe it. So I have a lot of respect for what he does. I just think, how, do you, how does he continually set the bar so high? See, when I see those types of shows on TV, though, the magic shows uh, in movies or are on TV, I always wonder, was it just clever editing? Did right. they do some sort of TV, some kind of camera trick that makes it seem as though this magic trick was in fact real? So I'm always a little skeptical when you I don't agree. see it in person. But this was actually pretty good, eh? I, yes, I agree. I normally think that as well. And I don't watch them, except because this was during the pandemic, it was all kind of handheld shot, like no editing, oh. that kind of thing. So I was like, well, they, they can't really fake this. There was no way to fake this. I thought you were going to say because it was the pandemic, you'd run out of other things oh, to watch. Oh, that too. So. <laughs> Definitely that too. <laughs> no, that's interesting. I'll have to check that out. I do enjoy seeing magic. It, you know, it certainly is a talent. It's a skill. And for people like David Blaine, the, that type of illusionist, they're obviously people who crave that sort of high adrenaline stunt. And they can pull off some really, yes. really incredible, amazing stuff and and this certainly was uh was one of those things if you have three hours to kill you can watch the whole video of which is a <laughs> very professionally and well-produced video of him you know being strapped to these balloons and the concept behind it and how they pulled this whole thing off and him the, then floating right. up into the air and descending back down again but you make an excellent point because he's not the only one there's a lot of people out there regular folk too who just sometimes feel the need to try to do something unique yeah, and right here at home, a great example of that is seven teenagers who are getting ready to swim across Boundary Bay this weekend. What? I know it's not some David Blaine-style stunt, but I thought this was really incredible nonetheless. Yes, seven teens are going to swim this weekend from Crescent Beach to Boundary Bay Boat Launch, which is which is down near the Canada-U.S. border. It's a 12.2-kilometer swim they're thinking it's going to take maybe three to four, five hours to complete the whole swim. And it's all a part of something called the 2020 Ocean Challenge. I thought that was just a really cool hmm. feat that these teens are going to accomplish. That is, we wish them the best of luck. That's very cool. I don't see myself ever doing something like this. <laughs> what, what about you, Nikki? Like, what about running a marathon? You're a runner. How about you doing uh, like one of these ultra marathon, you know, something like that? No, see, I fooled you by saying that I run, but I am not a run. This body is not the body of a runner. I have short little legs that that move. <laughs> they do, but they don't necessarily take me as far as marathons. Um, so you have I, no goals as such to do something like that. Nah, no, I'm trying to think of you know incredible feats or you know interesting or quirky accomplishments. I don't know, like. Maybe drinking the most shots of tequila in one night that or something like as a, a record. Nikki that I, hold. <laughs> I don't know. I, it's funny. I, you know, you try to think about have I ever accomplished something mm. really kind of funny and quirky, some weird record that's been set. How about you? Have you ever set a weird record no, or anything like that? Nothing weird. I considered enough of an accomplishment to having done a marathon, like literally dragged oh. myself across the finish line. 
uh, <laughs> marathon. But I was like, nope, nope, I did that now. I don't, I'm not going to cross that, cross that off my list. I'm done. Very much so. So good for you. What year did you run your marathon? Oh, so long ago. It was a different body, Nikki. It was a different body. <laughs> it was 2001. It was December hey, I- of 2001. This is Mornings with Simi. Vancouver, uh, home sales uh, up significantly across all product types. Home prices up as well. Uh, and again, we always have to remind ourselves that we are in a global pandemic with uh, double-digit unemployment. Uh, so this is not the usual thing that we see in a recession. Uh, no, it's not. That is Brendan Ogmanson, who's the chief economist with the BC Real Estate Association. He was talking to our Jill Bennett yesterday. So the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver has published their sales numbers from the month of August. And yeah, they're a bit unusual. The industry shows a big bounce back after the initial hit of the pandemic. We're talking even August 2020 versus August 2019 showing huge improvements. So what's been going on? So we thought we'd take a look at this from a different perspective. Joining us now is Kush Panach, who's a local developer. Kush, thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Sina. So what is it that you're seeing in the market right now? Is it busy out there? Extremely. And like you mentioned in your introduction, it is somewhat unusual. But uh, no, we've been experiencing quite a busy time. And uh, And as I've said to people, we were already in this kind of a market in January, February. And when COVID hit in March, I think it was like stopping a moving train. And I think it's just a case of it's been somewhat released again. And that seems to go against, though, because everything that we have heard was going to happen to the real estate market, doesn't it? It does. And I mean, there are concerns out there. I mean, we have to be concerned about the overall debt that the country is taking on. But in general, I think what you're seeing is, and I guess maybe what we're experiencing is a little bit different in the sense that the kind of homes that we're building, so the condo project that we're doing, it's not geared towards investors. This is primarily geared towards people are buying for themselves to live in. And it seems that market is very much there. The investor market, I think, uh, kind of disappeared a few, uh, disappeared right. a couple of years ago. We haven't gone back to that. So I think that's the element that's making a difference. That is so interesting then, because, you know, when the market was hot because of the investor market, people were always complaining that, listen, I can't downsize. I can't live in these tiny little suites. So is that changing now? I think there's a real shift there, and I wish I could say I predicted this, but we took a took a bit of a bold chance a couple of years ago when we designed this project. We went with larger suites. Uh, we created something that was kind of unusual. That we have a 9,000-square-foot amenity space with almost an acre of outdoor space. Uh, little did I know that, uh, you know, how important these elements yeah. become in a new home. And that's why, yes, I think people are very tired of living in uh, little shoeboxes in the sky above shopping centers. I think they're looking for more of a... I think a community, a sense of community, a place where you can actually live and actually have a little bit of space. So from what you see, are developers then pivoting then? Are they are they thinking, oh, okay, I know what people want and now we're going to build this? I think there is a pivot taking place. Unfortunately, the nature of our business is things move slowly. When it takes you multiple years to get a project approved, uh, a good idea today doesn't get implemented for almost two, three years because that's how long it takes to get a, pro- a project approved. Right, though. But has anything changed in that regard because of the pandemic? I know for some city halls, they were kind of moving things differently. Things were being more online. Like, has anything improved in getting something done? Uh, oh, I think definitely. I think uh, everyone's coming to the conclusion that we have to operate differently. And I think uh, a lot of the cities and the municipalities, are making, they're making a great uh, effort to, to adjust, just like everyone else says. And uh, I think that change is already taking place and we're seeing that movement already. I think things were just kind of frozen for a couple of months while we, everyone kind of sorted through and adjusted to the, to the new normal, if I can call it that. Right. So what are people buying out there? What do you see? We are seeing primarily homeowners wanting a place that has a sense of place and a sense of community. We happen to be very fortunate that our project is in Port Moody right now. Uh, it's a small community that really has a good sense of place, small local, local businesses. Uh, with great access to parks, beaches, all those traditional things people used to value. It's no longer just like, oh, I'm just going to buy this because it's a, it's a good investment. Right. It's, they're buying it because it's a great place to live. That's almost like what we used to do. Like It's like going back yeah. a couple decades, right? Well, it's a return to the old days. I've been in the business for 30 years, and for me, it's a, I, I won't say a refreshing change. It's, cha- it's, a, it's a nice change in the sense to be able to see that again, that it's not that uh, homes are not a commodity anymore. They're actually being valued for what they should be valued for. Interesting. Well, Kush, thanks so much for your time. 
Well, thank you for having me on. That's Kush Panach, is a local developer talking about the state of the market, the housing market, which seems remarkably resilient with great numbers. August 2020 sales versus August 2019 up 36% in Greater Vancouver. And it is being, it's still like chugging along, as Kush pointed out there. And it's changing as well. If you want to weigh in, Simi at CKNW. This is Mornings with Simi. So all this week and next, we're, we're doing our best to provide as much information as possible, at least what we know in the moment, about heading back to school next week. It is such a sensitive and kind of anxiety-ridden subject right now for so many people out there. So this week, we've talked to the superintendents in Surrey and in Vancouver, two of the largest school districts. But we also wanted to find out what's going on in other parts of the province as well. Each district is facing its own unique challenges right now to make these plans work. So let's talk about what's going on in northern BC. Joining us now is Janet Meyer, who's a superintendent of Coast Mountain School District 82, includes communities like Terrace. Janet, thank you very much for being here. Thank you very much for the invitation. I appreciate it. Well, this is such a sensitive subject, right, for so many people. What have the last month or so weeks been like for you? Um, they, they've been action-packed and intense, but coming, coming out at, at the beginning of September, we're feeling very confident about the plans that we've created to keep our students safe in our schools. And how many students do you have in that particular school, District 82? In District 82, we have approximately 4,200 students. And um, worthy of note, in my opinion, we have 46% of our students who have identified as Indigenous. So what kind of challenges have you been facing in trying to implement some of these protocols and, and getting kids and teachers back in school? Our challenges, I wouldn't necessarily call them challenges. I would call them invitations, if you will, because we have we have taken the let's do this together approach in Coast Mountain School District, I'm sure as many other school districts have, and, and we have pulled our part partner groups into the conversation and and talk to them since the very beginning of August on a weekly basis. And that includes uh, leadership from 10, 10 bands in our district and, and QP and sorry, the uh, teachers union and DPAC as well. Good. Okay. So what is social distancing going to look like in the classrooms? Has that been an issue? It's going to be a challenge, no doubt, but we have, let, for example, we have secondary schools that will be running a quarter system, which means they'll have two, one class in the morning and one class in the afternoon. And they're cohorted with their class in the morning, and steps have been taken to identify students in the afternoon if they're going to the same class, how we can maximize the cohorting, moving and transitioning from cohort one to cohort two. So meaning that in the second class, there's less physical distancing required than if it were a random group of students. So there will be students in the second class of the day that will have to physically distance from the other cohorts. And if they can't do that, they will have to mask up. Okay, so how large are the cohorts so that you're trying to develop here? Our cohorts at the secondary level are in the 60, the 60 range. They and could be up to 120, but we did not need to make them that big. Okay, and what about at the elementary school level? They're at 60. Okay, and you talked about masks in certain cases. Like, what is the philosophy there then? Is there any grade where you're mandating masks for them? We, we, at the district level, we are not mandating masks. We are taking our direction from the guidelines in the BC CDC documents, a la bon, Dr. Bonnie Henry, and we're taking our direction regarding the parameters that we're, we're living within from the Ministry of Education. It's so important up north, though, isn't it, Janet? Because, I mean, I was recently up there, too, and it's very clear that the whole the COVID-19 situation is taken very seriously to keep the numbers low. It is. It is. And, and I appreciated your comments at the very beginning around the anxiety that exists around this pandemic. And, and in some cases, rightfully so. I mean, it's a pandemic and we have to treat it as such. And as we return to school, as confident as we are in our plans, we have to ensure that, that safety remains consistently 
at a high level of expectation and there cannot be any slippage Mm -hmm. and um, we must maintain the same vigilant level of safety. Now, one of the other issues that I know faces some of the rural school districts is the issue of school buses, which you're much more reliant (laughs) on, right, in in communities like Terrace. So how do you deal with that? How do you, do you have to put more school buses on? Do you stagger the times that kids are getting on the buses? Well, we have a we have a contract with a company that provides our busing, and they have created the plan for our busing in consultation with our secretary treasurer and our director of facilities, in in such a way that that we can load and unload the buses in specific ways and sit students in family groups and middle and secondary students wear masks. Oh, interesting. So there will be some mask wearing on the buses then. Yes, that's that's a direction from the BC CDC. Okay, so fingers crossed. And what are you hearing from parents, Janet? Um, we're we're hearing we're hearing nervousness, if not anxiety, if not fear, and we're hearing that there are there's a cohort of parents that are just saying, no, we're not sending our children. We're going to go to distributed learning, which is absolutely fine. We respect that opinion. There are families that are unsure, however. And for those families, they they feel that they want to return to the brick-and-mortar system, but they're just not quite ready yet. So we have created what we call a transition plan for those families, whereby they're on the the register for the brick-and-mortar school, but they're going to sometime between September 10th and August 30th transition back into the brick and mortar school and during the time that they're at home um, until they feel comfortable we will supply them with um, a level of of academic support via a transition program teacher so they will interact with the teacher not nearly as much as they would face to face it it will be nothing even close to a face-to-face program or a, a full, rigorous, robust educational program. But we will, we will keep them engaged until such time as, as their family deems it appropriate for them to attend. All sorts of challenges out there. Janet, thank you for joining us this morning. You're very welcome. That's Janet Meyer, superintendent of the Coast Mountain School District 82. It includes areas up north such as Terrace, where they've got thousands of students that they also have to deal with. And the school bus situation, I mean, that's a big one, right? Because very few people are going to be living as close to the school that they can just walk there. So the school bus becomes an absolute priority and you're cramming kids on the school bus. So that's another thing that they have to work through there as well. If you want to weigh in with what's going on at your house and your family getting ready to deal with all of this, please do. Simi at cknw.com. And thank you to all the families who have written me. I'll be going through some of those emails actually a little bit later. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So we're juggling this whole back to school situation. Level of anxiety is high for a lot of people out there. Given that, that we're going to put people back into classrooms and everything in close proximity to each other. How do you feel about the idea of casinos reopening? Well, the union representing thousands of casino workers across the country is calling on provincial governments to allow the safe reopening of casinos. Let's find out more about that. Gavin McGarrigal joins us now, Unifor Western Regional Director. Gavin, thanks for being here. Yeah, good morning, Simi. Do you think we're really ready for this? Well, what we'd like to see in place is a timeline and a process to what the criteria are that will allow for a safe reopening. There are many different plans that are out there. there you know, there's the Vegas casinos, there's different casinos across the country. And we want to sit down, you know, in a responsible way and figure out 
how we can can get these businesses uh, open. It, it might be staged. For instance, you might be looking at you know slots before table games or whatever. We want to follow the best science, but the answer uh, simply can't be we're not going to open it. There's thousands of workers that rely on that. There's thousands of customers that uh, that enjoy uh, going to casinos, and of course, the province gets a lot of revenue for it as well. So we want to make sure it's safe, but we want to make sure that there's some form of a plan where stakeholders are involved, unions, the companies, uh, you know, BC Lottery, the, the public health, uh, everyone together. But but let's uh, let's get down and get a plan going. And do you think that people are ready to go back into a casino? Well, I think certain some people are, uh, and uh, you know what we're worried about is ultimately if if that uh, ability to to gamble in a regulated, licensed, safe environment isn't uh, at some point uh, opened up. You know, we might see illegal gambling, we might see uh, private gatherings, and we don't want to see that either. So, you know, not everyone is going to want to go there, just like we see in restaurants and bars. Some people are comfortable going, some people aren't. Uh, but you know, we question when you've got restaurants open and bars open, and and uh, you know, all kinds of businesses uh, open. Open, and then there's no plan right now at all uh, for casino reopening when other provinces are looking at that as well. Uh, again, we just think it's it's uh, long beyond time to have that conversation because not only are these workers devastated in the entire hospitality industry, and the report that was just given to Minister Baines, um, you know, really details that 95, 98% layoffs, but the casino industry is hit even harder than that. And so there's going to be thousands of workers that fall off their benefits that won't be able to get their, their drugs that will lose their connection to their workplace. And at the end of the day, um, you know, will we be able to recover from this is a question. Now, have you taken a look at some of those other jurisdictions? Like what would some of those best practices look like? We have, and and you know some of the discussions have been around, uh, you know, do you look at slots first, right? They're they're normally played individually. You know, can you put plexiglass barriers there? Can you contact trace? I mean, one of the things to me, if you think about contact tracing, when people go to a grocery store, um, you, you know, they're not taking names and numbers and all of those things, and and uh, and yet we're still managing. When you go into private businesses like restaurants or casinos, they have the ability to contact trace every single person who's there when they come in. So. You know, there are ways to try to figure this out. We, we definitely want to make sure we're following the best science and the best parameters out there. But there's enough jurisdictions across North America that have uh, tried different things. And again, we want to have that robust uh, dialogue with all the stakeholders in the sector to make sure that, that we're all comfortable with it and that we can get a path to, to some kind of reopening. Now, Gavin, can you give us an idea? How many jobs are we talking about here? Like how big was this industry before all of this happened? Thousands of workers in British Columbia alone. I mean, at the Park Casino in downtown Vancouver, where we represent the members, we've got about 800 members uh, right there alone. I know some of the other large casinos have uh, hundreds, if not up to a thousand workers. But even in small communities, places like Williams Lake, you know, there's currently a restriction on uh, gatherings over 50. Um, You know, Williams Lake is a small community. We have a Chances Casino, I think, there. And, uh, you know, is is there ways that you can do it in different locations, too, different phased ways? So it's thousands of workers and of course their families that rely on that and many of these workers by the way also have crossover into the hospitality industry so you know they might be a part-time banquet server at a hotel and then work over at the casinos as well right so because the hospitality industry has been the hardest hit out of any industry and then within that the casinos has been even worse so they're the worst hit and then the last to reopen and you know ultimately they deserve some form of of a safe plan do you get or how do you get around that fifty person limit though? Like you mentioned, grocery stores, the people are coming and going from grocery stores, right? They're in and out, in and out, in and out. But with casinos, people are going to show up there, sit down, and play. How do you get around that fifty person limit? Well, I think we follow the science and we follow, you know, the kinds of, of parameters that have been put there. I mean, at some point we're going to we're going to move past the the fifty person limit. Other provinces already have done that. Um, you know, and again, we don't we don't want to you know usurp the public health officer's role. But at the end of the day, you have to look at what other jurisdictions are doing, what the evidence shows us about about the transmission, about the best safe practices. So, you know, we're not expecting you know the lights to to turn on tomorrow. But we do think it's it's beyond time, and we've spoken to the provincial government about setting up a stakeholder table to get the workers, the companies, the lottery, the, the public health around the table. And, uh, you know, it's long past time for that to happen, and we need that to get going right away so that we can start 
to have proper discussions about these these kinds of things. We don't want any workers to be unsafe, and we don't want any customers to be unsafe. But as we've seen with so many other uh, uh, businesses out there, uh, there are ways that if proper protocols are followed that you can do it. Maybe you can't do everything. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can't do all the services, but what can you do? And and these workers deserve an answer, and so do the many uh, tens of thousands of British Columbians who, who uh, enjoy this form of activity. Uh, I think people are well-conditioned now to expect that everything isn't the same, and, and you know, but uh, what what can be done? Because ultimately, as we know, if you if you don't open up some avenue for gambling, people will will do it illegally, and that can create even more problems with clusters and, and super spreaders and things like that. And do you think that's happening right now? I don't think we've seen any evidence of that right now, but I think it's it's well known that ultimately there's a reason why many jurisdictions have regulated gambling. It's because to, to eliminate um, the downsides of not regulating it. Um, you know, it's like prohibition back with alcohol back in the day. You know, the harm of out, out, hmm. outlawing it is worse than actually figuring out a regulated way to do it. So um, we're just worried that if, if there is no plan and people start to get desperate and, and, and these companies don't see any plan for a reopening either, that, that people People just uh, lose interest and turn to other ways to, uh, to, to deal with this. All right, Gavin, thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks again, Timmy. That's Gavin McGarrigal, the Unifor Western Regional Director, saying that it's time for a plan. They want some kind of plan to allow the safe reopening of casinos in B.C., What do you think about that idea? Now, you heard Gavin's argument for that, to do it within the regulations, but at least get the ball rolling down the line to start thinking about reopening casinos. This is Mornings with Simi. We're continuing our series now of speaking with different school districts to find out what the return to class is going to look like next week. Joining us now is Dr. Kevin Godden, superintendent for the Abbotsford School District. They've got about 20,000 kids that they are dealing with. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Now, you've got about 20,000 kids. That's a lot of plans. Uh, So where are we at right now in Abbotsford? What is school going to look like next week? Well, uh, we surveyed our parents uh, last week just to uh, uh, get a a beat on what they were thinking. And uh, for the most part, we've got over 80% of our parents uh, deciding that they want to opt for face-to-face instruction, which is fantastic because we think that's the best thing for kids. However, we had a, a smaller group of parents who are, you know, legitimately concerned about uh, the transition for their kids. And so as a consequence of that feedback, we have pivoted somewhat to provide this transition program to allow them to have a more gradual entry uh, into school. And, uh, and so we've coupled uh, that with other uh, options like, like, like homeschool and, and distributed uh, online learning for, for older students. And so I think we're ready to go, and I think that captures most of the diversity of needs that we've uh, identified in our community. Right. Now, we talked about parents who don't want to come back to school. Some of the other districts are kind of allowing them to hold their place in case they do decide to come back. Uh, but you said they have still have to come to class one day a week. Is that feasible? A lot of them would rather just stay out of school entirely. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've certainly, I think the majority of our parents that we've connected with are okay with, with that and acknowledge that uh, ultimately face-to-face instruction is the best thing for their kids. However, um, as, as Dr. Bonnie Henry said, you, you, sometimes you can't unscare people. And so uh, we, we are, we're committed to working with families where they are uh, to uh, accommodate their needs. And so this is part of the reason why we have now asked these parents to make contact with their schools, with their principals, to identify what those very specific needs are so that we can tailor make the program for the, for the school. Now, the, the, the commitment we have made, regardless, is that they will retain their spot in the school. And so we're hoping that that will mitigate some of the concerns that they have and acknowledging that, you know, there's no one size that's going to fit all in this uh, situation. And I think a modicum of flexibility and mm-hmm. compassion is needed on our part to try to accommodate those nuanced needs. And what about social distancing in the classroom? This has been a huge issue for so many parents and for teachers. What's it going to look like? Well, I mean, uh, I'll go back to, um, you know, one of the things I've said to our parents and to our staff, uh, social distancing is just one of 
the things that we do in the hierarchy of controls that public health has provided us. It is, it is in addition to all of the, the procedures, the, uh, you know, going all the way at the top of the hierarchy to the level of confidence we have with our health authority around uh, contact tracing and public health orders. Uh, I, I try not to look solely at one thing, but look at the whole picture as a part of the plan that we have. And so uh, our, our classroom cohorts is one of the strategies that we have that we'll continue to use to try to keep the group of kids together, to have them lunch together, have them break together, uh, and have them enter and leave the school at discrete uh, and unique locations just for them. So I like to look at all of those things in tandem as a way of keeping right. all of our kids and staff safe. And what is the cohort size in Abbotsford? So uh, it, it, it depends. So at the elementary level, I mean, uh, elementary schools historically have had, you know, the cohort has been the classroom, uh, which ranges anywhere from as low as 20 at the kindergarten level to, uh, um, you know, 30 uh, at the intermediate level. And so the, the, the government uh, mandate was for 60. And so it, it depends on if the classroom will couple itself with another. So if there's, for instance, two grade three classrooms that want to work together. But in essence, those cohorts will be as small as the classroom itself, which, which is really uh, on average in the low 20s. And so they are able uh, to uh, meet the, the requirements around physical distancing. And again, I would mm -hmm. say that all of these things occur in tandem with all the other measures and procedures that we have in place. All right, Kevin, thank you very much for your time on this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's Kevin Godden, Superintendent of Schools for the Abbotsford School District. Check out their website for more information. Also, as we're hearing from every superintendent, contact the principal of your child's school. They are now in the process this week of providing more information on that. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about some cool news from outer space, shall we? Because I am absolutely fascinated by black holes. And they are a fascinating aspect of space exploration. And in fact, become even more interesting thanks to this new discovery that you may have heard about of a massive black hole that is believed to have been created by two smaller black holes colliding in space. Now, Dr. Evan Getz is a research associate at the University of British Columbia's Physics and Astronomy Department. He also just happens to be the co-author of the paper that was published this week in the journal's Physical Review Letters and Astrophysical Journal Letters that actually detailed these out-of-this-world findings. And he had a chance to speak with our Nikki Reitmeyer. A black hole is the remnants of a star that has collapsed in on itself and is so dense and compact that not even light can escape it. And there are, are different types of black holes. So the type I just described is what happens at the end of a lifetime of a very massive star, much more massive than the sun. There are also supermassive black holes at the center of most galaxies, and these are regions where the, there's about uh, a million to a billion solar masses uh, contained in a very dense region and uh, are, are believed to be at the center of most galaxies. There are also this uh, class of black holes called intermediate mass black holes, which range from about 100 to 100,000 solar masses. And what we discovered uh, last year in May was uh, the first conclusive evidence for such a intermediate mass black hole. How was that discovery made? We discovered it using uh, a network of ground-based gravitational wave detectors. Gravitational waves are ripples in the curvature of space-time. And those waves propagate out throughout the universe when cataclysmic astrophysical processes happen, like the collision of two black holes. Those ripples propagate out across the universe, and we use these ground-based gravitational wave detectors located in Washington State and Louisiana State, United States, as well as uh, near Cascina, Italy. And uh, using the network of gravitational wave detectors, we can sense these very minuscule ripples in space-time. 
That is fascinating. So uh, there was the discovery of these two black holes that now seem as though they've formed into one massive black hole. Can you describe to me that sort of process, that discovery? Right. So typically when these two black holes orbit around each other, they start uh, losing energy uh, in the orbit uh, due to the emission of gravitational waves. And so the, the two black holes come closer and closer together and eventually they merge into one bigger black hole. And uh, that process of the two black holes coming together and merging releases a large amount of energy. Uh, so the, the, the two black holes that merged were around 85 times the mass of the sun and 66 times the mass of the sun. And they merged into a black hole that's about 142 times the mass of the sun. And if you add up the, the 85 and 66, you get uh, about 150 solar masses or 151 solar masses. And so if you, if you see the difference between 100 and roughly 142 and 150, 151 solar masses, there's about eight solar masses of gravitational energy released in that collision. And that large amount of energy is, is completely invisible to our eyes. It doesn't come out as light. It comes out as these ripples in space-time. And so what we see in our detectors is a, for this collision of these two very massive black holes, is just a few waveforms in our gravitational wave detector, this kind of burst of energy. And uh, we detect that. It's completely different than the the other types of signals and, and the noise we see in our detectors. So we have a lot of confidence that what we have seen is the first observation of this type of black hole collision. Do scientists have any idea as to when this merger might have occurred? It happened uh, quite far away from us, about five gigaparsecs away, when the universe was about half its age. So it's, it's a very, uh, it happened a very long time ago. So it's one of the most distant gravitational wave sources detected so far. Wow. So it's billion, it happened billions of years ago. Well before VHS. Right. <laughs> um, now... How rare is this for researchers to become aware of something like this? It's the first uh, observation so far. We hope that there will be more observations like this in the future. What we would like to see is many more observations so we can gain further insight into how these uh, sources, how these black holes, these very massive black holes form and their black hole evolution process going from this sort of smaller tens of solar mass black holes to these intermediate solar mass, intermediate mass black holes. Once we um, understand that process much better, we can start to understand what drives the very supermassive black hole evolution. And because the supermassive black holes have become, our understanding has improved where we now know that um, their interaction with the galaxies really helps drive galaxy evolution and helps uh, this, the, the uh, you know understand the processes of star formation and uh, you know solar system formations in our in our uh, galaxy and indeed in many other galaxies uh, throughout the universe. As a person in this field, on on a personal level, what really excites you about this discovery? This is an incredible discovery. Uh, we've never seen anything like this before. It just goes to show that there's just so many unique discoveries on the using these new instruments that have come online since 2015. I think we have much more to discover about this rich symphony of the gravitation wave ripples that are coming across the universe from a variety of sources, come from colliding black holes to supernova explosions to spinning neutron stars. There's just so much discovery potential here, and every day seems to bring something new. Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Thank you very much, Nikki. I really appreciate it. That is Dr. Evan Getz, a research associate at the University of BC's Physics and Astronomy Department, talking about colliding black holes in space. Some fascinating stuff.